you two are down here. The Shed is the number one rated restaurant in London. You've got every foodie, celebrity and blogger in the city trying to get a table. But the problem is, until now, it didn't exist. Great atmosphere, delicious food, five stars rating. That's it, it doesn't exist at all. Hey, this is Lee, and you're listening to Curly Questions Podcast, a show with no straight answers. Today, we're heading right into the echo chambers of all things online here at this awesome space by Common Code, an agency that designs great digital experiences. And here on this cold winter night, I have with me Cameron Neal, the GM of Common Code, the man who built things, companies, organizations, and movements, things that make an impact. Cam was a keynote speaker at a recent product camp, and he spoke about the ethics of tech to product managers, people who build. In expanding that, I would like to start off with asking Cam to give his take on how a fake restaurant can even top the chart of TripAdvisor. And what does it really say about us? So over to you, Cam. Thanks, Lee. It's such an interesting phenomenon that we're experiencing you know, now with this uh, technology providing us with the ability to instantly connect with people and express our solidarity and socialness as, as social beings. At the same time, to be able to do it both anonymously and to be famous at the same time. Like it's, I think this online space is such a paradox for all of us in terms of how we participate. So a fake restaurant that gets fake reviews and top reviews, all it takes is, you know, these days, it's a well-worn business strategy to create fake reviews, fake accounts, fake things to then fuel those with bots, fuel those with people you pay to like go and give ratings. And then once something has momentum, everyone wants to be part of it because we're social beings. Like we're motivated. We want to be part of the crowd. We want to see, we want to, you know, we kind of get trapped into this like psychology of, well, everyone's saying that I should need to say the same thing. I can't, like I'm going with the masses. And we've known through our history, it's it's really, it's a real struggle for humans to, often critique themselves to critique large social movements to critique the crowd to stand alone is like often comes a lot of risk so you know i think what is interesting is this uh the way that tech companies tech products people who are now using those tech products to pursue agendas are kind of harnessing what they understand about us as humans and the way our psychology works. I mean, in my presentation that you mentioned on Saturday, I talked about this issue of like, you know, um, information warfare. Mm-hmm. You know, a fake account of TripAdvisor is hardly information warfare, but fake Twitter accounts and fake stories. I shared with the group a story that I watched unfold on Twitter mm-hmm. about you know, some guy, Twitter account I don't know, but mm-hmm. people were, re- were retweeting it, telling a story about how his 96-year-old grandfather um, commented on seeing who was a German and he kind of lived through the war and saw everything. He was commenting on the activities of Antifa in the US and basically mm-hmm. saying that, 
if we don't stop this, this is kind of what led to what happened in like Nazi Germany, where, you know, this was a counter narrative to the whole narrative of the white supremacist movement where Antifa is resisting and people kind of calling out that white supremacist movement as being the antecedent to Nazi Germany. And this was like a kind of counter proof point, right? So, so this journalist just quickly just started doing some digging and she's like, she just tweeted back saying, that's really like interesting that, you know, that your grandfather had that experience, especially since he never existed. And, oh. and and neither do you. And just basically just pulled it apart. She took her 20 minutes to do research into the account and what was going on to basically find out it was a complete fabrication and all the tweets are disappearing and the tweets are that and then the account got shut down. But it was like a made up thing. But it was telling a story that people wanted to hear. And so no one fact checked it. No one looked at it. They just retweeted because it told them a narrative that made them feel better about who they are. They don't want to believe that white supremacists on the street in Charlottesville in the US is an antecedent to what happened before because that was crazy. And so for them to kind of feel validated that the anti-fascists and the anti-fa guys who are resisting this, they're the problem, the story they wanted to hear. So everyone just piled on and retweeted it. And, you know, this is, you're seeing this weaponization of platforms yeah. like TripAdvisor, <laughs> arguably the impact of a five-star rating for a fake restaurant is minimal. It's just, it's a funny story. But, you know, like the way that we've been seeing um, platforms abused, Facebook, Twitter, etc., by bots, by, you know, it's information warfare, whether it's some of it's, some of it's more subterfuge by bots and like, you know, the Twitter doing a purge and all of a sudden these bots disappear and, yeah. you know, um, it's interesting. But, you know, at the same time, it's humans doing that, right? Like it's, it's not tech. It's like groups that want to tell particular stories or run particular narratives have found ways to game the system. They've found ways to create bots. They've found ways to create accounts. The other example that I used on Saturday, which is directly related to this, is all of a sudden overnight – just before I presented on Saturday, so maybe Thursday last week, maybe a week ago, mm-hmm. all of these astroturfed Amazon accounts just turned up, oh. like 500 or so of them. And, all, and every time anyone tweets something negative about labor rights conditions in Amazon warehouses, these people respond about telling people about how I work there and how wonderful it is and how great it is and this is a load of crap. And like Amazon's got the money to run an online PR campaign, which is anytime anyone tweets, someone is responding and they're acting as unable to tell right now whether they're real people or they're bots acting as very like real people, but it's just happening. And all of a sudden it's just gone crazy. There's just all these, like you tweet anything. And it's like people were trying it like live saying, Hey, just tweeted this and screenshotting the responses they were getting from these like accounts that didn't exist. Like they didn't exist before. And then all of a sudden they just appeared and they're just like Amazon ambassadors. And they're just trying to counter this narrative that there's all these labor rights abuses in all of their warehouses with an online army of, perhaps paid individuals or bots or a combination of the two that are now responding. And so when you've got the money to do that or the incentive to do that, whether you're like Russia and they're Mm -hmm. playing a very good information warfare game, wanting to stoke the far right throughout Europe, not because they necessarily agree with them, but they know Mm -hmm. that doing that just destabilizes their enemies. Like they do that very effectively, whether Mm -hmm. it be Israeli government has harnessed social media very well to run their narrative around Mm -hmm. like what the story that they want to tell. So, you know, like Mm -hmm. 
all of the best and worst things about us come out to play in these tech platforms. And like, I think we all had high hopes that internet was going to decentralize and uncover and mean you couldn't be anonymous and like all these kinds of things. And it's going to empower democracy. And what we actually see is that big vested interests with deep pockets have found ways to game those platforms for advantage, whether it be power, wealth, all those things. And so, you know, your example there is, quite benign one but that business model is now a business model like that's that's an actual business model power model disinformation model that people are using creating fake accounts exploiting our innate kind of confirmation bias we're looking for things that confirm what we want to believe that then we share with our networks and that's how stuff gets spread and like it doesn't matter whether it's true or not and I've certainly been yeah. guilty of sharing things that you kind of go, oh, it was crap. Like everyone loved that um, whole thing that Trump allegedly said like on Fox that, you know, mm-hmm. if he was ever going to run for, he'd run for the Republicans because yeah. like they're just stupid. He never said that, but like we all shared it because like that's what we wanted to believe, yeah. right? But it was never said. It. So like mm-hmm. it's, not a, it's not a part, it's not a kind of party side thing. I think yeah. us as humans I think it's being used a lot more by right wing, especially far right agendas, by forces against progressive democracy. Mm-hmm. It's being used far more by those groups with deep pockets yep. than it is being used by like get ups of the world. Yeah. But it is a what they're both tapping into is they are our same human nature about confirmation bias and things we want to believe and the way we want to virtue signal to yeah. people about stuff. We want to be the first person to tweet something or tell a story. Right. And so that's who we are as humans. And all of a sudden we're finding that exploited by these platforms that we kind of naively just signed up to use and are now part of our lives. Okay. Sounds like, I mean, we always have this bias, even from historical age, mm. whether technology was here or not. Yeah. Um, but the only thing is that technology sort of lean on these biases can amplify it through their network effect. True. Yes, yeah, so I think I, I think that's true. And I think you can now reach a lot more people, yeah. you know, um, like the distance between people is in some respects closed by technology. And yeah. like, you know, I think... One of the points, again, that I made on Saturday was that um, what tech enables us to do or what play these platforms do is enables the small minority of people that have a very extreme view to connect and find each other, to then mm-hmm. feel like their views are normal and valid because there are 5,000 people in the world that believe the same thing as them. Now, 5,000 out of like 9 billion is a drop in the ocean, but that's now a community of people. That's not that's toxic and that's bad. Mm-hmm. On their own devices, like you go back 100 years, they never would have found each other. And so their views would have been dismissed and minor and would never have been any kind of threat, but now they can connect and organize. Mm-hmm. So just as equally as that's a positive, it's also yeah. a negative. But, you know, like technology enables us to do that in a way we never could. So, yeah, like I think historically, I think we just haven't had the alignment of the tools, mm-hmm. the business models, mm-hmm. and the the motivations mm-hmm. to exploit these things in a way that we now do. Yeah. I mean, intelligence agencies were doing information warfare mm-hmm. in the Second World War, like, you know, doing very crude by today's standards, but like it was still going on, right? Yeah. But it was only, you know, it was quite, quite different to, I guess, propaganda and, you know, the Second World War with, you know, the Nazis got propaganda to a fine art, you know. So, like, it's, all, it, it's certainly been part of our history, but I think you're right. I think technology, the network effect, we kind of get an amplification of yeah. that and we get an amplification of all the things that are not great yeah. about us. 
you know, all of a sudden we can see them, uh, yeah. you know. And uh, I saw a – was an interesting um, – I don't always agree with Bill Maher, the TV host in the US, mm-hmm. but he did a really interesting piece the other day on our avatars, mm-hmm. like, you know, like – the person, people we pretend to be on Facebook that we're not really. Yeah. And he said, like, I want to know who you really are. I don't want to see your Facebook profile. I want to see your web search history. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, like, that's probably a better reflection of, like, Still. some aspect of yeah. who we are, right? But, you know, like, it's, again, it's not the whole truth yes. about us. We are multitudes. We are very different. And yeah. we're different people in different contexts and different people. And that's also who we are. I think what else is interesting, I think, that tech has kind of done in a – unforeseen way is it's created you know if you saw um james gunn get sacked from being the director of guardians of the galaxy 3 because of something Mm. he tweeted like four or five years ago okay and he was like yeah that was stupid i did that i was wrong and i'll accept the consequences i'm not that person now Mm -hmm. like i've progress and i would never say that now but i did say that in the past but now there's this history right and people go searching for the one time you said that one thing that was bad and you get crucified for that bad thing Mm -hmm. it's kind of like it's kind of like this gotcha thing and it's kind of and it's kind of like this record and it's kind of implied in it which i kind of find quite discomforting is this idea that people don't change over time and that people don't evolve but like yes i think i think some in some respects we never change but in other respects we do like we do move on we do evolve and you know what we want we actually want people's ideas and thinking to change by coming into new information it's one of those things that's you know always kind of struck me about the you know politics is like Mm -hmm. i want a politician to change their mind when they get better information. I don't want them to think the same that they thought last year. <laughs> now, I want them now that they've actually been in the job for 12 months to go, you know what? I was wrong before and now I believe this. Now they they notice quite very often say I was wrong, but you do see people shifting their positions and often that's seen as a negative. True. But it's actually not. Like we want people to change their mind and get educated and kind of evolve their views. Mm. And we want we want people to move. So, you know, I think I think it's interesting how sometimes our personas in some ways can be trapped by things we've said or thought before. Yeah. I certainly don't want to be judged on how I dressed ten years ago or how I looked <laughs> ten years ago. There's probably photos of me and I'll be like, Oh, you know, yeah. dag- daggy things I wrote ten years ago that like I'm like ashamed of. And like your know, Facebook memories now reminds me of it. I'm like Oh, I was I was young and I shouldn't have said that. But you know, like, yeah. but that's all a matter of like public record now. Like yes. people can find that and mm-hmm. you know and and make make judgments whether they should or they shouldn't. I mean, mm-hmm. having a psychology degree and psychology background myself, like the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. Mm-hmm. So, like to some extent, there is an element of us being held accountable to what yeah. we've done or said before because it's yeah. the most likely thing to predict the future. Yes. But we're complex beings and we do alter and change and our bodies change. And, you know, I mean, you can get into a whole discussion about what the self actually is and for free will and determination, which is beyond the scope of this podcast. But, you know, like I think it's interesting what we and, and people beginning to write now and, and, and reflect on what technology shows us about ourselves yes. and the things that perhaps have always been there but are now more visible and amplified because of, as you said, a network effect and we're kind of seeing where pro- biases are fueling the programming of things and so all of a sudden our biases become very visible because of yeah. the way we wrote the program and the mm-hmm. way we want the thing to perform like all of a sudden you go it's a real problem that most of these businesses are owned by middle-aged white guys that have been privileged and all the coders are tech bros like as a 
that has real world consequences that that's the bias that's built into our technology soft mm-hmm. and our software platforms that are running mm-hmm. the world yeah but also you know, the, the people who build things they have their biases but what about those who consume things right so people build things that's relevant to the consumers and the consumers continue to consume things that are relevant to them so in a way that they never think beyond what they used to think it's an interesting one, right? I think um, back in my fair trade days, there was a, a great thing that I kind of latched onto because people are kind of like, oh, you know, the market for fair trade products is only every time we do surveys, it's like anywhere between like five and 10% of the population. It's just, mm-hmm. they're just not demanding it yet yep. for us to be able to act. And there was this great um, response. It's like, Sony never ever developed the PlayStation because 25% of the population wanted it. They went, here's a great product. If we market the shit out of it, people will buy it. Correct. So they created a market and it's like the same will happen. If you create ethical products and you can market the shit out of them and tell people they need them and they want them, they will buy them. So, you know, like on the one hand, I agree with you. On the other hand, Mm -hmm. people want what they're told to want. Mm. If you've got marketing and again, this social thing, like this FOMO, I'm missing out. Oh, Mm -hmm. I'm not on Facebook. Like you go back, 10, you know, eight, 10 years. Oh, I'm not on Facebook. I'm, I need to get on there because yeah. so people can, I can see their photos. Like, you know, like again, you get network effects that draw people into using things because of, yeah. of, of other factors. And mm-hmm. we use that as part of now how we get people to use products and how, as we, if we want to grow the business mm-hmm. of a tech product, we think about how we acquire users, network effects to kind of bring them on. So like, yes. So I think, I guess I'm on the one hand, I'm saying, I think, we cannot underestimate the cultural context within which we're operating and the memes that exist around that cultural memes. I'm not talking about dank memes, like cultural memes that exist that we've all internalized and the way things happen that tell us what we want or predispose us to want certain things and the money that gets spent in running certain narratives, which are true or not true. At the same time as, yeah, I think some of our biases and our, stuff is revealed by the things that we want to buy and the things that we want to consume. And mm-hmm. we've always seen this problem, you know, come doing a lot of work in the ethical consumption space. We've always seen that kind of behavior mm-hmm. gap between people saying they want to buy more ethical similar products and them actually doing it, right? Yeah. And you no, know, it's called the behavior gap. But like to some extent it's also it's also not about a behavior gap. It's about mm-hmm. a convenience. Like it needs to be on the same shelf next to the exact same thing at the same price and yeah. they'll choose it. Like, you know, yeah. like I'm not going to go and search for it. But yeah. it's the same yeah. thing. People people didn't recycle mm-hmm. until there was a recycling bin at their home. <laughs> Like you've got to put the tools there for people to use them, right? So I think it's an interesting kind of dynamic about how you and, – and all of this kind of feeds into well, how do we get our way out of where we are because like we are saturated in it now and to some extent it's very difficult for us to understand and see externally the environment we're operating in to understand what's problematic, what's not. And you know, I think data is a great example where regulation is like now rushing to catch up because we didn't no one kind of knew what data would do. No one kind of understood what the play was here in terms of privacy and how platform companies would get access to so much information about us and then abuse it. Like it's not necessarily any kind of maliciousness. It's Mm-hmm. You know, Uber's doing exactly what a capitalist company should do, which is seek to maximize profit for its shareholders. It's trying to make as much money, externalize costs of workers, externalize cost of regulation, don't pay tax, mm-hmm. get as much data so we can sell more to these people. We know about them. Blah, yes. blah. 
they're just doing what a business should do. And in a lack of any kind of regulation or anything to say to do it differently, that's what they've done. Now, everyone's trying to catch up. Everyone's trying to say, well, what do we do? Like, you know, the federal government's here is deliberating right now on what to do around our consumer data around electricity and banking and telcos. Because like it's... It's an asset now and we don't know about it. We don't know what they know about us. Yeah. Like, you know, in the wake of the Cambridge Analytica and Facebook and people are like downloading their Facebook data and just looking going, going, why do they need to know this? Why do they keep this? And yeah. the bigger question for me is, well, what can they do with that? Yeah. Like downloading the data doesn't give you any insight into what they can do with yes. it right? Yes. and how it gets used. Mm-hmm. And that's what we've got no idea around, right? So, you know, I think... I think we're beginning to catch up on this stuff. But as consumers, we've kind of been naive. We yeah. Facebook, that seems great. You know, we kind of had some idea that we were kind of that mm. we were the product because we were getting it for free. Yeah. It didn't know, we, we didn't know what that meant because yeah. we didn't know. And all of a sudden we begin to realize that, well, some people know what it meant, and Cambridge Analytica is using it to like influence elections. And you're like, Oh, our data is being weaponized against us yeah. now. Right. This is a problem. Now people are beginning to think about, well, how do we do that differently and beginning yeah. to demand a different approach? Mm-hmm. But, you know, so I think where we've been as a society for quite a while, I believe, is that technological innovation is what's driving us forward and social innovation just hasn't kept up. And so technology is what's Mm -hmm. wagging the dog as Mm -hmm. opposed to the other way around. Like it's not – technology isn't necessarily serving to build the kind of world that we all want to be a part Mm -hmm. of. We're trying to catch up and like rein it in and like trying to figure out, well, how do we now – get it back to serve the kind of world that we want to be a part of because we're, you know, we're going to see Yeah, we fall off at the moment, I think. Yeah, no, like, we, yeah. and social innovation's hard, like, you know, and, and it's hard and, and, we're, and we're busy and we're saturated in tech and we can stream, like, the new show on Netflix and just spend a lot of time binging. Like, I don't want to think about, like, what I need to do to, like, build new business models or, like, <laughs> you know, but I was inspired. I went to Above All Human for a while oh, yesterday. I was there too. Yes, and and I can't say the lady's name, but the woman from Taiwan talking about like the prototyping future democracy, like that's just inspiring stuff. It's they're using the same tech that you and I have access to, but they're using it to try and make their country better and make democracy work. And like that's hard work. They're they're there every Wednesday, like working on this stuff, like you know, out of their own. Like it's hard work. Uh, The people who fought for civil rights and for the vote, like that was generations of hard work that people had to like work at and fight for like that kind of stuff is hard and we take it for granted because we've grown up in a golden age and you know like now it's kind of like how do we learn to do that again and uh, do we have the stomach for it and if Mm -hmm. we don't have the stomach for it then Mm -hmm. what are the consequences of that Um, you know and it was interesting i mean i start i started my presentation on saturday kind of going if there's one thing we can learn from popular culture, it's that we all believe technology is going to kill us and enslave us. But like we've watched all those movies and we, we, we watched yeah. the latest robot mm-hmm. that Boston Dynamics creates, mm-hmm. learn how to open a door. And we're all like, oh, we're all going to die. And then we just get on with our lives. We're just like, oh, that's going to happen. Like we're just fatalistically just Im- like we can't stop it. We're just going to Im- we're just yeah. embrace our fate here. And it's like it's not an instruction manual. We're not trying to build Skynet. Like that's the opposite message of that movie. It's like let's figure out how not to do that. We're not trying to build the robots that enslave us and use us, you know, in the yeah. Matrix. 
but we don't seem to have like internalized that. And like the conversations are seem to me to only be relatively recent mm-hmm. around what are the conversations in, in institutions we need to build that are 21st century institutions and yeah. 21st century responses, 21st century regulation that yeah. begins to counter yeah. where we now find ourselves. Because if we don't, like mm-hmm. we've got illustrate, we've got popular culture illustrations of what that might play out as. But I think we don't know. And I think like that that, that presentation about mm-hmm. you know prototype future democracy very inspiring because that that is showing a way that is showing a way to begin to take control of the future and build civil civil tech and governments that work for Mm -hmm. people and their interests in a way that australian democracy arguably doesn't anymore but you know so i think it's fascinating it's a fascinating time and we've we can now watch it all unfold around us Mm -hmm. in a way that my mum never believed you know growing up You'd see the news, but that was kind of like we can watch live feeds now of stuff unfolding yeah. all around the world. And yeah. we've got live feeds of stuff that's kind of going on. And we can see a million conversations that are kind of going in, in a way that you couldn't before. And then it's both a good thing and a bad thing. But it's interesting, you know, just how you sift your way through that to find the solutions. And that's kind of what I tried to leave people with on Saturday is like there's a million solutions out that are already happening, people are working on. They're just not at scale. They're not at the scale of, Facebook and Uber and, you know, whatever. But there are things out there people have built that are Mm -hmm. super exciting, that are cooperatively owned, Mm -hmm. that are owned by the users, that, you know, like a – they're all out there. Like the examples are there. We just have to figure out how we move capital and talent into those kind of areas to grow them at the expense of Mm -hmm. others. And having – again, I've got a psych degree, so I kind of – I see the world in a different lens. Yeah, well, with with that with that lens, you know, and I think one of the key kind of things that we've always known about how to change organisations or change cultures is not to try and change organisations or cultures, is to build alternative ones that are better and that reflect the things that you want, and then move people from the old one to the new. Yeah, but how do they, like, if I'm just an everyday consumer, yeah. like, we spoke about digital footprints, we spoke about, you know, the insights that people get from us, from being yeah. online. Yeah. How do we get take control of it? Like, you know, we can't control the organisations, we can't wait for a new movement to be built, but what can we do individually to really recognise? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, and, and something that here at Common Code, we've often debated being technology people about how like practically how would you build a tool that you had control of your digital persona in a way that you just don't have the ability to now so yeah you can download your facebook data you've got nothing there's nothing you can do with it you can't plug it into somewhere else because it's a monopoly right like there's there's nowhere else to give it to so but i think the idea is that they're looking at with um the telcos here is an you know is an interesting one so you, you you can go to Optus. Now, Optus is going to know a lot about you from the data it's collected from your years. You can now say, give me all my data and you have legally, from a regulatory point of view, Optus will have to give it to you and scrub their whole system of your data. And then you can give your data to Telstra and say, now here's everything that you can, you can now know all this about me to tailor your service to my history. But the data is mine, doesn't belong to the telco anymore. So that's a shift that's beginning to happen regulatorily, right? But it's still very clunky what you like what we i went to a future of retail event a few few months ago now and we were talking about you know like just the the way that tech is being weaponized people didn't like me using that word in a retail environment that you know your digital persona that surrounds your phone Mm -hmm. you know um coke has done partnerships with um uh there was a fight i think i can't remember the name of the store it's a 500 store 
footprint retailer in the US. And they have island screens mm-hmm. that are advertising Coke products and River Coke. But those screens will like ping the phone of the person who's walking past and be able to like lift from the phone yeah. information about they don't they don't they know who it is, yeah. but they know that the person who normally uses this phone, yeah. these are things about them, and then they'll tailor the advertising to fit the person who has the phone. Wow. And they can do that. And so you begin to like you go, well, potentially, yeah. like that's good, but like I need to consent to that to happen. And it's not consensual, but you know, like there's some like around your phone and the platforms you're on on your phone, there's a whole digital persona of who you are that yeah. you don't know what that tells about you. You have no control over the, the digital representations of you and they differ from device to device, mm-hmm. platform to platform. Mm-hmm. There's all these expressions of Lee in the world that you don't know what they are, mm-hmm. how those are being used and what those are being used to shape your experience. So yeah. what, what companies are using those personas now to mm-hmm. do is to shape what information I tell you, yeah. what ads I'm going to send you, what products and services I market to you, what price I'm going to charge you is all based on these things. And you don't even know what they are. So how do we, but there is no tool at the moment to have a, a central widget, whatever it is, you know, the, the stick that joy has in uh, blade runner 2049, that's your persona and you choose to reveal parts of that to different platforms you're onto and you should be able to choose the things you want them to know about you and Mm -hmm. you as a retailer should be saying if you tell me these things about you here's the service i can provide to you by you sharing that with me yeah and when you withdraw it Mm -hmm. like then i don't have it anymore and like you know i think there's a real but most consumers don't know right and this is and this is the the gap there's this gap around what data can and can't do that no one understands and this is why like where we kind of got to on that day was there's such a space for progressive retailers as their point of difference to be completely transparent with consumers about mm. here's what I you've just come onto my online shop here's everything I know about you here's what I can do with that would you like me to do those things or would you like to like change what you share with me yeah. and to the, for retailers to kind of take a take a positive and proactive role in educating consumers about how their data is used and how valuable it is and how people are using it. And I think retailers that do that and educate people and show and be transparent will very quickly shift the market so that people will go, well, I'm going to shop with them because this is they respect me. They respect me as a user. They're respecting my data, respecting who I am. And all these other people will go, well, we need to do that too to like catch up. It's market competition. Yeah. I don't, as individual consumers, I don't know what we can do, but I think there, I guess there's a bunch of policy stuff happening. I think there's a huge space in the market for alternative business models and businesses to be really frank and forthright and transparent about data with their customers and with that. I mean, ultimately, I think what we need to be able to get to, and I don't know what the technology is for it, but that that you have, you control your digital avatar because it represents you in the world and you should be able to know what that is. You have a right to privacy, a right to be anonymous, a right to not have that shared, but equally free and informed yeah. and prior consent to share that mm-hmm. like it become necessary but yeah i mean you you just you go into any of these kind of future retailer mm-hmm. things now and they're all about mm-hmm. using tech and data and your profile to tailor your yes. experience and that's 
very attractive for business, but not for for well, con- well for some for some consumers yeah. it's pretty rad. You know, yeah. like you know me and you walk in yes. and like the AR the AR assistant welcomes you and says hi and this is why I know what you're looking for. It's right here. Like it's highly convenient. It can be wonderful. Yeah. As long as you know how that data is being derived and how it's being used and it's not creepy. Like, you know, I think a lot of people go, oh, it's a bit creepy, but it's useful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just like you're saying that um, let's rethink around how we control our data. Like, mm. can we eventually own our data and say to this business, hey, you can have my data and tailor preferences? But my question to you is, do you think while as humans we like some form of control, do you think we really care about this? Like, when there's so much data about ourselves, do you think we actually want to be the one keeping it at all? Not everybody, no. And I think this is going to be part of the challenge, right? I think it's the role for regulation. What are governments supposed to do? In, in my view, what governments supposed to do and what they do do different, different things. But like to some extent, social policy from government is all about protecting the most vulnerable and the most likely to be exploited yes. and whatever. Mm-hmm. So there needs to be like a minimum standard applied mm-hmm. that goes provides protection for everybody. Mm-hmm. And then above that, you can mm-hmm. kind of, compete and do whatever but you know so there will need to be some regulatory response for sure i don't think you can solve it all by individual choice and business differentiation and kind of creating different markets but you know i think i think it remains to be seen i mean venture capitalists that are funding big tech are betting on the fact that they're too big to be regulated so they're going to keep making me money but i think governments are increasingly looking at these things critically, how they can break them up, how they can break monopolies, how they can mm-hmm. protect consumers and consumer data. Mm-hmm. There is a huge regulatory project going on around that uh, globally. I mean, Europe's leading, but I think, you know, people are beginning to think about that. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and so there will be some regulatory response. Uh, like the New Economics Foundation in the UK, they, they made a point, I put this on my slides on Saturday, they think it's absurd that like the idea that in five years' time, technology developers will be able to build what they want like they're just going that's just not true like if you think of any other technology there's regulations around what cars and planes and all this other kind of stuff like all the stuff that's like part of necessary there's regulations you have to meet and there's things that you have to do in that uh do things in a way that protects people's lives and consumers and so their view is that no like you this the future will there will be stringent requirements and stuff put on software Mm -hmm. that has to protect people and protect democracy and protect privacy and whatever and like if that happens like Mm -hmm. then I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm on the fence as to whether that will or won't happen across jurisdictions. I think it'll happen in some areas. Mm-hmm. So, to, I mean, to your point as to whether people want it or care enough, I think people often need a burning platform before they kind of really change. They need to see how bad something is before they shift. But I was really encouraged about the quality of the dialogue and conversation and the way that the media kind of helped fuel that around the conversation here around my health record. Yeah. and opting in and out and like that the whole discussion around mm-hmm. it's my health it's my data why should these people have access to it like why have you done this like yeah. there was a quite sophisticated and informed conversation that played out in the media around mm-hmm. that now did it involve all strata of society probably not yeah. like you know but like the very serious questions there that pushed back on design and pushed back on what it was doing and pushed back on how it was working and mm-hmm. you know um the vulnerable don't have a voice anyway. Like, you know, like the Centrelink robo-debt thing, like it's abhorrent. But the people who are being sent the letters are disempowered to be able to respond to that 
anyway. Like that's not who the respondents are. The respondents are the people kind of acting for them or finding a way to organize those people to respond to those. So, you know, I, I think all you need is like the Cambridge Analytica thing to happen and a few other big things like that to give people a burning platform and they care about it. The challenge is, is that you've got to match people's caring about it with their ability to take action. And at the moment, yes. at the moment, because of the monopoly, because of like to such, such insidious and what other options do I have? Like what you're faced with, with Facebook is, um, I can take this action because I don't like how this is being used. And then I'm going to lose the ability to share photos with my grandmother who lives in a different country. And I'm not going to, it's really easy now. And I've got to sacrifice that for that. Yeah, and what's, what's, what's the trade-off? Because yeah. there's no other options, right? And this is why I think, you know, you've got to combine burning platforms with alternatives. And like yeah. at the moment, you know, with the My Health Record thing, there is an alternative. You're just going, I'm opting out. Like, yeah. it's not, there's not, I'm going to move it to something else. It's just like, well, I'm just going to not going to allow you to have access to it. Yeah. If you have serious health problems, you don't have that option. Like you need to kind of opt in or else it becomes really personally yeah. damaging. But, you know, what does that do? Does that inspire change from mm. government to are they going to change what they're doing? I mean, the, the opposition here is saying that they will do complete review and do it something completely different. Having said that, like it's kind of started with Labor; they're their initial architects of the My Health Record thing. And like, you know, so I, I don't know. You know, I think government likes to know as much as they can about us. Yeah, and so like they're not motivated by protecting our data and having it owned by us. They want to own it. But you know, I do a lot of work in agriculture, and I think it's it's one of the big debates in ag tech. Um, and the National Farmers Federation is really pushing on <sighs> regulatory and framework responses to protecting farmers and farmer communities in terms of their data and how they get access to it and who owns it and how they benefit from it. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there's a lot of activity in this space and, yeah. like, I've, it's up for grabs, right? Yeah. And this is why, you know, like, a lot of stuff I'm motivated by and work, mm -hmm. work I'm involved with is mm – -hmm. It's all up for grabs. So we can influence it. We can shape it. We can begin to shape it to be more like the things we think it should be that serves communities and serves people as opposed to corporations and you know, investors. Like we can do that because it's so up for grabs. The power isn't consolidated. The, the, it's not done. Like it's not locked. If you, you know, theory of change. We're definitely in an unfrozen space around this. Technology is disrupting everything and it hasn't been rewritten and calcified back into a system of power yet. So mm. we can move it. Yeah. For how long that's going to stay open, I don't know. Maybe mm. it's 10 years, maybe it's 30 years. I mean, the pace of change right now, maybe it's maybe it's, it's just always stays open yeah. now. I don't know. But, you know, I, I, I kind of I, – it's all, it's all very daunting and it's all very challenging, but I'm not – unhopeful mm -hmm. i'm motivated to figure out how we harness the better things about our humanity <laughs> than than what might yeah. be reflected in our search histories you know like yeah. you know um to create a world that i want my kid and grandkids to grow up in like you know I, and, yeah. I, and i think lots of people are being switched under that and lots of people mm -hmm. are finding and, and building alternatives yeah. they're just not here they're yeah. not scaled they're not available to everyone yet to make a choice to remove their data and to go somewhere else and do something and mm -hmm. you know be protected and have this product and like you know it's um it's, it's i think it's all still up for grabs and uh, yeah. uh that, that's exciting at the same time as it is daunting yeah and 
what would be your, I mean, like you spoke about, you know, you can take control. Would that be your last, me- your, your last message to the listener on, on curly questions? Like, what is it? I mean, we spoke about a few things. Yeah. What would be one thing that you would like them to, to remember? I think, yeah, look, it, it, it is a hard one. And, you know, the most important thing for me comes down to who owns and benefits the platforms and the technology. And I think, I think ultimately that matters. Like who they're serving has a big impact on what they do. So, like, technology itself can be harmful. Like, we're sad because we spend too much time looking at screens. But that's by design. We need to look at screens frequently for companies to monetize what's going on there. And that's because it's about ownership and it's about the the objectives that are sought to be achieved. If we can make choices around um, community ownership, distributed ownership, employee-owned businesses, cooperatives, B Corps. Mm-hmm. There's lots and lots of businesses out there that have a mandate that isn't about just seeking to maximise shareholder return and maximise profit, but are actually about achieving profitability, but also like being good for the world and good for people. And that's reflected in their ownership structure and who mm-hmm. they And so I think all of us can look around for the kinds of businesses and products that support that kind of different ownership structure. And I actually think that's one of the most important choices that we can make with where we spend our money mm-hmm. um, and the kind of platforms we choose to use and the kind of things we engage with is is around, well, at the end of the day, who is my dollar rewarding? And I think it's as true as it is in like fair trade coffee as it is in the products that we choose to use. And at the same time, like you, we make choices that we can. Mm-hmm. There isn't an alternative to Facebook. So if you feel like you can't delete Facebook, don't, yeah. don't get upset about that, yeah. but just know what recognize it is you're doing it. recognize yeah. recognize what you're doing yeah. you know yeah like everything i've said i'm still on like linkedin and facebook and yeah. twitter and pretty active on all three of them <laughs> it's probably not a lot you couldn't learn about me from like my social media profiles and like you know to some extent that's fine i'm in a privileged position i don't need to hide from from stuff um yeah. but you know i think um we do what we can we organize we 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 focus on stuff that just gets makes the world a bit better every day and i think it can be overwhelming to kind of see um the problem is so large but i think you know what's what's super exciting is the more that you look you'll just find people that are creating solutions every day and um how we give them our attention how we give them our money how we give them our support um that matters we can always choose to empower them yeah that's right if we're not doing it ourselves like that's what we can offer them like you know as we both experienced yesterday, you know, that prototyping future democracy thing from Taiwan is just, it's inspiring. Yeah. And what they're doing is happening everywhere in the world. Yes. We just don't hear about it, right? Yeah. Because that's not what we hear about. But those things are happening. Like, yeah. see, there's amazing stuff that's happening every day that we just don't hear about. And we would be skin to look, mm-hmm. give them our time, give them our money, support their crowdfunding campaign. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. But, you know, like, there's, there's a million things we can do to help us feel like we're part of the solution, not just part of the problem. Yeah, great. Um, I think before I end the night, I just wondered, where can the listeners find you? Not online, but where can they find you? <laughs> <laughs> um, they can find me, like, Twitter's probably the place where I direct them the most. Like, okay. so I'm at Cameron Neal on Twitter. Um, you'll find me there with the picture holding my son. Um, that's probably the best place. Or LinkedIn, you know, Cameron Neal. Um, my businesses, yeah, Common Code is where we are meeting today. Um, Ethical Fields is another one. Uh, Red Hat Impact. Those are my three things that I that I have, and you can find me through those too. Cool, awesome. Thanks, Cam. Thank you, Lee. Thanks for listening.